Good morning, ladies and gentlemen. Good morning. Um, it is an open secret around here that uh, Father Martin gives titles to all of his sermons and then cunningly hides them from the congregation. Uh, this talk also has a title, and I'm going to give it to you as, as we start. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved." Fear and grace may seem like antithetical ideas, but they come together in the work of John Bunyan, the great 17th century nonconformist preacher and writer. Why talk about Bunyan at all? Let me take a poll. How many of you grew up reading, in some form or another, Pilgrim's Progress? Virtually everybody in the room. Uh, I suspect that for many of us, trained, especially uh, formed by the evangelical tradition, it was and still is a central text. Its images and ideas informing the way we understand faith far more deeply than we consciously know. Now, I'm only a trade school graduate, not a scholar, and others may think differently about this, but for me, Bunyan is at ground zero of our evangelical worldview. To hear what he has to say is to grapple with that tradition, whether we consciously embrace it today or somehow imagine that we have grown beyond it. <clears throat> um, to look at what Bunyan has to say about grace, uh, the obvious place to begin is with his spiritual autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. Grace Abounding is essentially a testimony. All of you evangelicals out there remember testimonies? Uh, especially remember seeing testimonies at uh, Sunday evening services. Remember Sunday evening services. Uh, <laughs> and remember how the effectiveness of a testimony often depended largely on the number and darkness of the secrets revealed about uh, the testifier's uh, life before Jesus. Now, when I was a young, respectable teenager, I always used to worry listening to these testimonies that uh, my life before Jesus was terribly dull and that no one would want to come to him if they heard my life story. Bunyan had no worries about this at all. He was, first of all, uh, convinced that deliberately recalling the beginnings of God's work in a person's soul was a profitable spiritual exercise. And he always held in front of him the reality of his sin and the depth of lostness apart from God. <clears throat> he confesses many, many sins in Grace Abounding. His addiction to coarse language, lying, swearing, and blaspheming, and his Sabbath breaking by playing games, especially a stick game of some sort called Cat. Uh, I don't know exactly what he would think of those of us who go home and turn on the television and suffer through a Bears game. Uh, but he saw this, uh, what he was doing anyhow, as being Sabbath-breaking. Um, now, although he, as a young man, vigorously pursued a life of sin, he experienced a tremendous amount of fear about his eternal destination. He had nightmares and visions about the judgment and the terrors of hellfire. Such fear is prominent even in Pilgrim's Progress. Christian's journey to the celestial city begins when what he reads in a book convinces him that his home, the city of destruction, 
will be burned with fire from heaven. And he cries out, how shall I live my best life now? Oh, wait a minute. No, he, he doesn't say that. He says, uh, what shall I do to be saved? Fear pursues him throughout his pilgrimage. He becomes a prisoner of despair and doubting castle. And even at the very end, as he crosses the River Jordan, uh, just by coincidence, you all in the 9 o'clock service just finished singing a hymn about this. Uh, as Christian crosses the Jordan, he has a tremendous existential crisis. Ah, my friend, he says to Hopeful, the sour sorrows of death have encompassed me about. I shall not see the land that flows with milk and honey. And with that, a great darkness and horror fell upon Christian, so that he could not see before him. <coughs> also here, he in great measure lost his senses, so that he could neither remember nor orderly talk of any of the sweet refreshments that he had met with in the way of his pilgrimage. He had horror of mind and hearty fears that he should die in that river and never obtain entrance in that gate. Here also he was much in the troublesome thoughts of the sins he had committed, both since and before he began to be a pilgrim. Hopeful had to remind him, <coughs> these troubles and distresses that you go through in these waters are no sign that God has forsaken you, but are sent to try you whether you will call to mind that which heretofore you have received of his goodness and live upon him in your distresses. <coughs> As we return to grace abounding, we find Bunyan telling the story of a wildly swinging struggle between a desire to reform himself and a desire to remain in his sins. Once, while playing cat, he heard a voice within him say, Wilt thou leave thy sins and go to heaven, or have thy sins and go to hell? That voice did not prompt an hour of decision. However, it, it caused him to have a strong sense, quote, that I had been a great and grievous sinner, and that it was now too late for me to look after heaven, for Christ would not forgive me, nor pardon my transgressions. He continues, I return to my sport again, and found within me a great desire to take my fill of sin, that I might taste the sweetness of it. At the same time, however, he gradually fell in eagerly with the religion of the times while retaining his wicked life. He was overrun with a spirit of superstition, adoring all things belonging to the church. In the churches where I and probably some of you were raised, we called this churchianity. Uh, it's forms of godliness without the power thereof. Uh, Bunyan pursued what he called outward reformation, trying to follow the commandments as a way to heaven. His neighbors began to see him as a godly man, but inwardly he says he was nothing but a poor painted hypocrite, yet I loved to be talked of as one that was truly godly. I was proud of my godliness. He was now caught in seemingly endless cycles of hope and despair, questioning both whether he was one of the elect and whether he had committed the unpardonable sin against the Holy Spirit. The scriptures kept calling him back to hope, and he gradually came to see that hope depended on nothing that he could bring, but only on the grace of Jesus. Now, in addition to the scriptures, he was reading something else. Guess what? Luther. Uh, he said that he found in Luther's commentary on Galatians 
my condition in his experience so largely and profoundly handled as if his book had been written out of my heart. He said, I do prefer this book of Mr. Luther upon the Galatians, accepting the Holy Bible before all the books that I have ever seen as most fit for a wounded conscience. At times, he had powerful moments of encouragement. He writes, I remember that one day, as I was traveling into the country and musing on the wickedness and blasphemy of my heart, don't we all do that? We go into the country and we muse on our blasphemy and wickedness. <clears throat> and considering the enmity that was in me to God, that scripture came to my mind, he hath made peace by the blood of his cross, by which I was made to see again that God and my soul were friends by his blood. Yea, I saw that the justice of God and my sinful soul could embrace and kiss each other through this blood. This was a good day for me. I hope I shall not forget it. A wonderful understatement there. Um, <clears throat> now, following close behind was yet more backsliding. Remember backsliding? <clears throat> he wrote, I have found it as difficult to come to God by prayer after backsliding from him as to do any other thing. He would struggle with words from Hebrews such as, for if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sin, but a certain fearful looking for the judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. And this also from Hebrews, even as Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright, for ye know that afterwards, when he would have inherited the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. The sufficiency of grace and Esau's loss of birthright contended in his mind, <clears throat> one or the other alternately poised to gain the upper hand. But more waves of scripture continued to give him hope. And him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. He found himself saying to Satan, here is in this word no exception. And God had a bigger mouth to speak with than I had a heart to conceive with. He also said, I also saw more so over that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He writes, great sins do draw out great grace, and where guilt is most terrible and fierce, there the mercy of God in Christ, when showed to the soul, appears most high and mighty. <clears throat> um, there are many other things worth looking at in Grace Abounding, but at its core is a spiritual struggle between, guess what, law and grace. Now, uh, returning to Pilgrim's Progress for a moment, there are many images uh, there about grace that are quite powerful, and I want to briefly share two of them that uh, both occur at the scene in the interpreter's house, uh, which is an extended scene where uh, many things are explained to Christian, and to me it's one of the most evocative uh, moments in the entire Pilgrim's Progress. Uh, the first scene I want to share with you is this, and I quote directly from Pilgrim's Progress. 
a very great parlor that was full of dust because never swept was shown to Christian. The witch, after he had reviewed a while, the interpreter called for a man to sweep. Now when he began to sweep, the dust began so abundantly to fly about that Christian had almost therewith been choked. Then said interpreter to a damsel that stood by, bring hither water and sprinkle the room, which when she had done was swept and cleansed with pleasure. Then said Christian, what means this? The interpreter answered, this parlor is the heart of a man that was never sanctified by the sweet grace of the gospel. The dust is the original sin and inward corruptions that have defiled the whole man. He that began to sweep at first is the law, but she that brought water and did sprinkle it is the gospel. Now, whereas thou sawest that so soon as the first began to sweep, the dust did so fly about the room by him could not be cleansed, but that though was almost choked therewith, this is to show thee that the law, instead of cleansing the heart by its working from sin, doth revive, put strength into, and increase it in the soul, even as it doth discover and forbid it, for it doth not give power to subdue. Again, as thou sawest the damsel sprinkle the room with water, upon which it was cleansed with pleasure, this is to show thee that when the gospel comes in the sweet and precious influences thereof to the heart, then I say, even as thou sawest the damsel lay the dust by sprinkling the floor with water, so is sin vanquished and subdued, and the soul made clean through the faith of it, and subsequently fit for the king of glory to inhabit. Then another picture, also at the interpreter's house. The interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a place where was a fire burning against a wall, and one standing by it, always casting much water upon it to quench it. Yet did the fire burn higher and hotter. Then said Christian, what means this? The interpreter answered, this fire is the work of grace that is wrought in the heart. He that casts water upon it to extinguish and put it out is the devil. But in that thou seest the fire, notwithstanding, burn brighter and hotter, thou shalt also see the reason for that. So he had him about to the back side of the wall, where he saw a man with a vessel of oil in his hand, of the which he did also continually cast, but secretly, into the fire. Then said Christian, what means this? The interpreter answered, this is Christ, who continually, with the oil of his grace, maintains the work already begun in the heart, by the means of which, notwithstanding what the devil can do, the souls of his people prove gracious still. And in that thou sawest that the man stood behind the wall to maintain the fire, this is to teach thee that it is hard for the tempted to see how this work of grace is maintained in the soul. Uh, Bunyan wrote a rather lengthy and remarkably powerful treatise on the subject of law and grace called, quite logically, The Doctrine of the Law and Grace Unfolded. And in it, he explains quite potently uh, how he views law and grace uh, and how they work in our lives <coughs> and in <coughs> the whole business of salvation. He argues that without, self, without any uh, exception whatsoever, all of us are living under one of two covenants. 
either the covenant of works, also called the covenant of the law, or the covenant of grace. The covenant of works binds the person living under it to total compliance to every single one of the law's demands. Either one's works are completely unstained by sin, or one is condemned to eternal punishment. Bunyan argues that, quote, this was the treasure that Adam left to his posterity. It was a broken covenant. Oh, how beggarly and miserable are the sons of Adam. Now, there are many things to be said about this covenant of law. Uh, none of them particularly happy for any of us. The law is merciless. It doth control, Bunyan says, saying, this was not well done, this was done by the haves, this was not done freely, and that was not done perfectly and out of the love of God. Indeed, he says, the one proper work of the law is to make manifest sin. Attempting to justify ourselves doesn't make this any better. Bunyan says that the righteousness that is not the righteousness of faith, that is by believing in Jesus Christ, cannot please God. That which is not Christ cannot redeem souls from the curse. It's no help either if we think we're willing to follow the law. Uh, this doesn't cause God to uh, view us with any more favor. Again, Bunyan, the motive that moveth God to have mercy upon sinners is not that they are willing to follow the law, but because he is willing to save them. Nothing we can do short of relying on the work of Jesus can free us from this covenant. Bunyan writes, a man living thus under a sense of his sins may repent and may be sorry for them and yet be under this covenant and yet be in a damned state. Self-improvement doesn't buy us anything either. Bunyan, to think that your condition is good because there is some change in you from a loose, profane life to a more close, honest, and civil life in conversation, I say to think this testimony sufficient for to ground the stress of thy salvation upon is very dangerous. As many poor souls in these days, yet they think that they must be saved alone by the Savior, yet they think there is something to be done on their parts. Their promises and vows and resolutions to become a new man join in church fellowship and whatnot. That man that doth take up any of the ordinance of God, namely as prayer, baptism, breaking of bread, reading, hearing, alms deeds, or the like, I say, he that doth practice any of these or such like, supposing thereby to procure the love of Christ to his own soul, he doth what he doth from a legal and not from an evangelical or gospel spirit. He makes this clear distinction that everything we do comes out of one of these two motives, either a legal motive, that is to fulfill the law, or an evangelical or gospel motive, because Christ has given his salvation and his grace freely to us. Uh, <clears throat> there is no such thing, he writes, as satisfaction to be made to God by our prayers or whatever we can do. That man doth act from a legal spirit who maketh the strictness of his walking the ground of his assurance for eternal life. In other words, if you think that you are going to be assured of your salvation by having a daily quiet time, uh, by attending morning and evening prayer services, uh, by teaching catechesis, by doing anything, uh, if, if you think that this is the reason that you will be saved, 
you are deeply mistaken. Uh, we talked about uh, St. Semipelagius a few weeks ago. Uh, he doesn't get a particularly good rap here either. Uh, the person who adopts a semi-Pelagian view of salvation makes, in Bunyan's words, Christ but a piece of a savior. Thou wilt do something and Christ will do the rest. Thou wilt set thine own doings in the first place and if thou wantest at last, then thou wilt borrow of Christ. Thou art such a one that dost Christ the greatest injury of all. First in that thou dost undervalue his merits by preferring thine own works before his. And secondly, by mingling of thy works, thy dirty, ragged righteousness with his. What about works themselves? He says, now the principle is this, not to do things because we would be saved, but to do them from this, namely, because we really do believe that we are and shall be saved. Then thou wilt not act and do because thou wouldst be accepted of God, but because thou hast some good hope in thy heart, that thou art accepted of him already, and not on thine, but wholly and alone upon another man's account. Do not do that you may believe, but believe so effectually that you may do. So, belief, faith, does that save us? Faith as the gift of God is not the Savior, as our act doth mean nothing, uh, does merit nothing. Faith was not the cause that God gave Christ at the first. Neither is it the cause why God converts men to Christ. But faith is a gift bestowed upon us by the gracious God, the nature of which is to lay hold on Christ, that God afforded give for a ransom to redeem sinners. It is not the first cause of salvation. Now let's pause for a moment. It's probably a good exercise right here to ask ourselves whether we are, despite all of our theological sophistication and our often expressed uh, orthodoxy, chained in some way to the covenant of law. In a Facebook post uh, last Sunday that began as conversation in my car as I drove him home from All Souls last week, our fearless catechist wrote this, 21st century North America may not be as obsessed with perdition questions, am I saved, as was 16th century Europe, but we are obsessed with performance questions, am I doing enough? This is a primary reason why the Reformation, which addressed both questions, still feels current. As we say in academia, in uh, essay questions, discuss. <laughs> any thoughts about any of this? Yes. Hmm. 
are, are you saying, in effect, if, if I understand you correctly, that uh, part of what you think is missing here is the notion that uh, abundant life begins now and is not just uh, fire insurance, as it were? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Anybody, uh, Bob, I saw your hand up. Just a moment ago. I mean, the occasions on which I think that are few, but yes. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> but, but, but the, God is not a father who, who looks down and says, oh, that's, well, that's not the Mona Lisa, you know, that's just a <laughs> Mark. You know, I, I I think about this. You know, this this whole business of the law having to be perfect. Um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm a recovering Juilliard graduate, and um, you know, uh, and I, you know, I may never recover this side of glory completely. But you know, this this notion of having to be perfect uh, to be accepted was just so profoundly woven into our DNA. I mean. There were sayings uh, around school, like uh, the Juilliard version of the uh, light bulb joke. Uh, how many Juilliard students does it take to screw in a light bulb? A uh, hundred? One to screw in the light bulb and 99 to stand around saying how much better they would have done it. Um, <clears throat> and uh, then there was also the saying, just remember, every, min every minute you are not practicing someone else is. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think, uh, you know, attaching to something that you just said, Mark, I remember when I first consciously came to the Lord when I was in about fifth grade or so, I got this notion that we were supposed to give God all the glory for everything. So if I played in a little piano recital and somebody said that was good, I was supposed to say, oh, gee, well, that wasn't me, that was God. And eventually, as, as I moved into my teenage years, it gradually morphed into, it can never be me, I'm no good. And um, that's something I've also had to recover from a bit. Um, now, I, we could continue discussing, which would be great, but I've left us one covenant short of the whole explanation here. Uh, we've been talking about grace, uh, I mean, uh, law, and we need to talk about the covenant of grace. Um, Bunyan does not use Paul Zoll's definition of grace as one-way love. He defines it this way. 
the free love of God in Christ to sinners by virtue of the new covenant in delivering them from the power of sin, from the curse and condemning power of the old covenant, from the destroying nature of sin by its continual workings. It is a pardon not conditional but freely given. There is never a believer under the covenant of works but under grace, the free, rich, unchanging love of God. He says that the covenant of grace is not actually a covenant with us at all, that it's actually a bargain <coughs> between the Father and the Son, made, he says, before humanity was even created. It promises us a new spirit, where the old covenant promises none, and it is a covenant ever renewed by Christ himself. He writes, <coughs> and this maybe goes back to the image of uh, the oil can being squirted into the fire. The maintaining of grace also is by Jesus Christ's intercession. Oh, had we not a Jesus at the right hand of God making intercession for us and to convey fresh supplies of grace unto us through the virtue of his blood being pleaded at God's right hand, how soon it would be with us as it is with those for whom he prays not at all. But the reason why thou standest while others fall the reason why thou goest through the many temptations of the world and shakest them off from thee while others are ensnared and entangled therein, it is because thou hast an interceding Jesus. He says, I have prayed that thy faith fail not. Now, how does Bunyan say God brings us into this covenant? He says God does it by killing us. He slays or kills the party to all things besides himself and his son Jesus Christ and the comfort of the spirit. He doth first kill them with the covenant of works. The soul that is killed to his own righteousness counts that but dung. When the God of heaven has killed them to everything below himself and his son, then Christ will remain. And indeed, this is the very reason why sinners, when they hear of Christ, yet will not close in with him, there is something that they uh, take content in besides him. Oh, when the sinner is killed and indeed struck dead to everything below a naked Jesus, how suitably then doth the soul and Christ suit one another. Then here is a naked sinner for a righteous Jesus, a poor sinner to a rich Jesus, a weak sinner to a strong Jesus, a blind sinner to a seeing Jesus, an ignorant, careless sinner to a wise and careful Jesus. Oh, how wise is God in dealing thus with the sinner. He strips him of his own knowledge that he may fill them with Christ's. He killeth him for taking pleasure in sin that he may take pleasure in Jesus. Now, we began uh, talking this morning about fear. And we moderns tend to think of fear as being incompatible with a gentle, genteel, uh, largely therapeutic faith. But Bunyan finds a place for it, at least insofar as it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of wisdom. He writes, a fear that puts the soul upon flying to the Lord by prayer for the covering of his imputed righteousness and for strength against the devil's temptations and his own corruptions, that God would give down his Holy Spirit to strengthen it in his way with resolution through grace, never to be contented, while it doth find in itself triumphing over it by grace, faith in the blood of crucified Jesus. I love these endless sentences. Uh, for the soul, when it is rightly brought from under the covenant of works, cannot be contented without the presence of God, teaching, comforting, establishing, and helping of the soul to grow in the things of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Oh, how afraid the soul is, lest it should fall short of this faith. Now, uh, in, in answer to a lot of the questions that have come up, Bunyan doesn't leave us wallowing in fear or wallowing in uh, this uh, terror of somehow falling again under the covenant of law. He gives much uh, consolation and encouragement. He writes, if you love your souls and would have them live in the peace of God to the which you are called in one body, even all believers, then I beseech you seriously to ponder and labor to settle in your soul this one thing, that the new covenant is not broken by our transgressions. Let me repeat that. The new covenant is not broken by our transgressions, and that because it was not made with us. Therefore, I say, when thou findest that thou art weak here and failing there, backward to this good and thy heart forward to that evil, then be sure that thou keepest a steadfast eye on the mediator of this new covenant, and be persuaded that it is not only made with him and his part also fulfilled, but that he doth look upon his fulfilling of it, so as not to lay thy sins to thy charge, though he may as a father chastise thee for the same. Uh, A large part of the final portion of uh, the uh, covenant of law and grace is a dialogue uh, with a person who is terribly fearful that he has sinned in such a way that God will not pardon him. And in fact, as this dialogue continues, it becomes painfully obvious that this person is really the younger Bunyan himself, who was afraid that he had committed the unpardonable sin and therefore could not be saved. And um, I wish I had time to read some of it, but it's wonderfully consoling and encouraging, suggesting that if you feel the urge to seek after God, he has not left you yet. Uh, If you feel a burning in your heart when you hear his word spoken, he has not left you yet. And he continues in that vein for a number of pages. Uh, It's it's, uh, really very powerful stuff. And one thing that he says, and this reminds me, uh, speaking of our evangelical past, of an old um, Bill Bright tract, uh, yeah, I think I think it was actually the four spiritual laws, uh, in which uh, there is a diagram of a train shown, and it shows that uh, feelings and emotions are the caboose of the train; they're not the engine that drives the train. And uh, what Bunyan says along these lines is that when it comes to living under the covenant of grace, thou art not to follow thy sense and feeling, but the very word of God. In other words, all of this is grounded in Scripture. And when you find Bunyan in Grace Abounding struggling with his his eternal destiny, virtually every time he comes to New Hope, uh, it's through reading Scripture, through a passage coming alive to him in a new way. Um, And it might be good uh, in closing and maybe allowing for a few more questions and comments and discussion to uh, summarize a lot of this uh, with these words from Bunyan. Thou canst not be so willing to come to Christ as he is willing that you should come to him. So uh, any thoughts uh, as we conclude this this morning about any of this? Yes, Vern. I'm understanding that for about a century, 
Yeah, in fact, in fact, uh, Mark Galley just wrote a piece in uh, the CT where he says that uh, Pilgrim's Progress Next to the Bible is probably the most influential book in the entire uh, evangelical movement. Yeah. Well, first of all, that's not in Pilgrim's Progress. That's in the other stuff. And, and secondly, I can tell you how it worked out in my family. Uh, I can remember uh, my mother reading to my brother and I, but it was a children's version of Pilgrim's Progress. It wasn't the original text. So there was a lot of stuff that was made a little bit uh, easier to take. Uh, although, again, I, I mean, uh, you know, there was enough uh, fear of God in our household that uh, you know, I'm sure some of it seeped through. Yes? Vern, did I cut you off in the middle of a thought? No, okay. Anybody else have any thoughts, questions, debate, what, what have you? Yeah. Yes. I like the, kind of that same discussion we were having about, you know, the paintings and all that stuff. And you're saying, you know, it just depends. You know, is it good to praise your own music and appreciate it? It just depends. And I feel like in my life, one of the things I feel like I'm looking for is, like, things that, that lead to connection and meaning for human things that lead to disconnection. And so sometimes maybe a, a rule I have for myself can actually Yeah. And um, sometimes living to the law actually promotes disconnection because the 
Sure. Yeah, you know, one, one thing that's been kind of a, a major thought for me over a period of years, uh, some years ago I became quite obsessed with this line from Colossians, uh, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And I became fascinated by this idea of what it meant for our lives to be hidden. And I've realized over time that a good deal of the good we do or the positive effect we have on other people is frankly hidden from us. I mean, how many times have I had a conversation with say an old Juilliard friend who will say, do you remember way back when, when we were sitting in a cafe in New York and you said this to me and it really changed the way I viewed this. I don't even remember the conversation at all, let alone what I said. And it's, it's that mystery of hiddenness which really fascinates me and I think is really at the root of a lot of, you know, the difference between hanging on to our works as a reason for God viewing us favorably and trusting that he is working through us as we let go and let him. Yes. Yeah, you know, you know, re remember last week. And yet, it's also a word like not to be discouraged because we don't see what we're not, you know, we're not seeing all the fruits. So when you hear about it later, it like, it like reminds you that there's this great mystery that's all yeah. happening, that you have no, sometimes yeah. you get to see moments of, oh, right. Yeah, last week we were reading um, in uh, Matthew 25 and, and the, you know, the, the uh, wise and foolish virgins. And right after that is the great scene where the Lord says, depart from me because uh, when I was hungry, you did not feed me. When I was naked, you did not clothe me. And then he says to those on his right hand, uh, when you uh, saw me hungry, you fed me. And they said, Lord, when did we see you? It's, it, it's part of that. I, I saw some hands over there. Oh, I see a hand back there. Uh, 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 law is speaking. <laughs> all right. Thank you all. <clears throat>